Now, I realize that I'm still very much the new kid on the block around here, um, but as you get to know me a bit better, you'll realize that one of my characteristics is that I have a very sweet tooth. And I think the ladies who bring around the treats after the evening service probably already know that because they're not usually allowed to walk past. I can never just sit and have a cup of tea if there's something sweet on offer to go with it. And it wouldn't be a surprise to find me sitting in a coffee shop somewhere, even though I don't drink coffee, much to Marty's dismay. But I'll have a cup of tea and I'll have a caramel square or, or something like that. And on one such occasion, a few years ago, um, I was in Ballyclare with my parents in a coffee shop. And we were sitting at a table and on the wall beside us, there was a canvas. And it was Wall Street, New York, 1958, a black and white picture. And we were all amazed just at the sheer amount of people bunged into this picture on the pavement. It was a sight to behold And we were talking about it, and I remember after a few seconds thinking about it, my dad said, I wonder how many of those people are dead now? A cheery thought. I laughed, and my mum rolled her eyes, and that would be about typical. But some years later, um, just over two years ago now, I was doing a fair bit of traveling through my work, which wasn't as a milkman. And at one stage, I was in New York. And I remember walking down the street towards Times Square and again just being overwhelmed by the number of people around me. And the thought came to me, and it must have been just because of all the different people and all the different nationalities and languages that I could hear around me. I thought, I wonder how many of these people are saved? I couldn't help but think of my dad's slightly less cheery question. But it occurred to me that I have no idea who these people are. There are hundreds upon hundreds of them, if not thousands. And many of them are probably going to a lost eternity. Lost, dead, if you will. And there wasn't a single soul in front of me that God didn't create in his image and who didn't need to hear the good news of God offered to them in Jesus Christ. And if our mission statement, as we were thinking last week, is to be witnesses for Jesus even to the ends of the earth, then there wasn't one in front of me that the church shouldn't have been trying to reach witnessing to Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the apostles were to witness for him in Jerusalem, locally, Judea in the wider area, Samaria a bit further afield and with those people who are just a little bit different, and then even to the ends of the earth. It might seem like it's mission impossible, But what about us? Think of the number of people who live even on Ravenhill Avenue and the surrounding streets. Think about this part of Belfast generally and think about how many are out at church this morning, although being at church isn't necessarily everything. But how many people aren't? How many people are going to a lost eternity? We probably don't often think about it in those terms because they're a bit stark, but it's the church's task to reach out to these people and be witnesses for Jesus to them. And this month and next month, with the exception of Children's Day and a few other things, we're looking at church essentials. What does it mean to be church? What should that look like? If our mission is to be Jesus' witnesses, then then how do we do that 
in outreach, in how we relate to one another and what that shows to other people, in how we are the church as we worship together and learn together and care for one another. And I suppose the big question is how? How do we do it? How do we go about it? Acts 2 is a pretty good place to start, it has to be said, because at the end of the chapter we read that the Lord added daily to the number of those being saved. And so as we come to look at this passage which describes the Holy Spirit coming to the believers at Pentecost, I want us to think about that question. How how should we, as a body of God's people, go about being witnesses for Jesus? And the first thing that really jumps out of the passage is that it's not about us and the work that we do, but it's about the Holy Spirit and the work that He does. It's not about us and the work that we do, but it's about the Holy Spirit and the work that He does. And if you look at the book of Acts, you'll notice that nothing really happens among the disciples until the Holy Spirit arrives. In Acts 1, we read last week that Jesus ascended into heaven. And in the meantime, the disciples have chosen a replacement for Judas Iscariot, so they are 12 once again. But there's no record of anything happening until the day of Pentecost. We know when Pentecost was, it was the 50th day after the Sabbath of Passover week, if you can trace that. It was a harvest festival. It was celebrated at the same time every year. But Luke doesn't tell us exactly when Jesus ascended. We have an ascension day in our calendars, but it's just been assigned. We don't know when that happened. But no matter the length of time between Jesus ascending and the day of Pentecost, the believers were waiting in Jerusalem for the Spirit, and nothing is recorded. No miracles, no conversions, nothing, until the Holy Spirit appears. One commentator remarks how from chapter 2 to 6 of the book of Acts, there really only are two characters. There's lots of people, but the two characters are the Holy Spirit and Satan. Many people and events happen, but without the Holy Spirit, the believers achieve nothing. And then Satan counterattacks with persecution, yet the Spirit still causes the church to grow. And it's a pattern in the book of Acts, especially in the early chapters. Here in Acts chapter 2, we have these dramatic events at Pentecost, followed by Peter proclaiming Jesus to the crowd. And then in verse 41, we read that about 3,000 people are added to their number that day. That work of the Holy Spirit also comes before the fellowship that the believers have at the ends of Acts 2, which we're looking at in a lot more detail next month. But the point stands, the Holy Spirit is the catalyst for everything that happens. In chapter 3, Peter and John encounter a crippled beggar who is healed, a work of the Holy Spirit. And even though Peter and John are seized, in chapter 4 and verse 4, we read that because of what they were proclaiming, many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000. Then in chapter 5, verse 12, we read that the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then two verses later, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And I could go on. People coming to the Lord is always a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how it was for the apostles, and that's how it is for us. Without the Holy Spirit, we can achieve nothing. It's interesting that in John 14, 18, words I read to the children, 
As Jesus promises that he will send the Holy Spirit to the disciples, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, or in the translation I read, I will not leave you alone. Suggesting that if he didn't send the Holy Spirit, then they would be alone, they would be orphans. And this is our position too, if we reject the Holy Spirit. Someone said to me recently, and they're here this morning, but they were joking when they said it. They said, oh, we're Presbyterians. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit. And I don't want this morning to get into discussion about charismatic gifts or or worship styles or anything like that. But I wonder, is there a truth behind what that person said? Francis Chan, who's an American pastor and theologian, has written a little book on the Holy Spirit, which he has called Forgotten God. Forgotten God. I wonder how appropriate that title is. Maybe we feel like the Holy Spirit is the one person of the Trinity that we know the least about or we're least confident to talk about. There's more mystery involved in the Spirit's work. But I think we just need to get back to biblical basics on the idea. A few weeks ago in the evening service, we looked at Luke chapter 11 where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray the prayer that we now call the Lord's Prayer. And he says in the following verses, still talking about prayer, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus actually invites us to ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. And it's true that that if we're saved, yes, the Holy Spirit lives in us already. But there also seems to be a sense in Scripture that we can possess the Spirit in differing measures. Yes, we either have Him or we don't because we're either saved or not. But there are a number of examples. In Psalm 51, David writes, "'Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me.'" The Spirit can be given and taken away. Jesus in John 20 breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet he also told them to wait for the Spirit at Pentecost. And these things don't contradict one another. Jesus has the authority to give the Holy Spirit and to take him away. He lives in us from conversion. Even in the book of Acts, in several occasions, we read that the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we read it in chapter 2 and verse 4 today. But we also know that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And when does grief happen? Grief happens when something has been lost. We have the Spirit in different measures. We can be filled with him like the day of Pentecost or we can grieve him. So we need to take Jesus at his word and and ask the Father for the Spirit. And that's crucial for reaching out to the lost. I heard someone say recently that the most attractive thing that we have in church to attract outsiders is the presence of God himself. Not programs or a particular style of worship or or buildings or money or not anything like that, although some of those things may play their part in bringing people, but the presence of God himself. It's not about what we do, but it's about the Holy Spirit and his presence with us. That's not an excuse to just cop out, to, to let go and let God, although there's some truth in that saying but it's a challenge for us as we serve God to seek the Holy Spirit. John Stott has said, 
Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without the spirit's power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. To reach the lost, we need the Holy Spirit in our midst. How are we to be witnesses for Jesus Christ? Well, firstly, it's not about what we do. It's about what God does by His Spirit. But then secondly, the message isn't about us either. It's about Jesus. The message is Jesus. What was it that the believers were proclaiming in the various tongues and languages? Verse 11 tells us that the people said, we hear them declaring the works, the wonders of God. What exactly does that mean, the wonders of God? Well, if what Peter said to the crowd is anything to go by, then they were proclaiming Jesus. Marty's going to talk about Peter's message next week, so I don't want to step on his toes. But broadly speaking, you might want to go away even and read it in preparation for next week. But the firm focus is on Jesus, speaking words from the Old Testament and how they pointed to Jesus, then talking about Jesus' life and what he did, and then calling the people to respond to what Jesus had done. The message is Jesus. The key to reaching people is the presence of the Holy Spirit, but there's also to be a focus on Jesus. So I suppose you might be forgiven for asking, well, which one is it? Which member of the Trinity should our focus be on? But the straightforward answer is that they're one and the same because the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. 1 John 4, 2 says that this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Holy Spirit will always point us to Jesus. So in theory, if you went to a service, probably not too far from here, where there was a great focus on the Spirit and on spiritual gifts, but if there wasn't a focus on Jesus, then that place is not filled with the Holy Spirit. At the same time, if you went to a a dull old Presbyterian church, and I'm not saying that this is a dull old Presbyterian church, but where there was preaching about what people should do and, and, and what the Bible says, but that doesn't point to Jesus, then that place is also not filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus must be our focus. Those of you who know the area that that I come from will know that my home church is situated right across the road from a secondary school. And last summer, um, we started a thing where we invited some of the sixth form students over to have lunch. Um, And some of them were being asked why they didn't come to church. And we expected the answers, you know, it's it's dull or it's it's too long or, or we don't want sermons or whatever. But none of the things that we expected were said. All of their answers were around social issues, we couldn't come to church because of your views on this, or you're homophobic, or, or you're this, you're that, or the other. And I wonder, is that what we are really known for? Of course, it is impossible, to, or it is important, sorry, to take a stand on these moral issues. But is that what we're known for? Are we known for being a people who are against this or against that, or simply as a people who know Jesus? Paul's mantle was to preach Christ crucified, 
throughout Jesus' time on earth, the focus was on him, the woman at the well who went and said, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see Jesus. Others who Jesus warned to tell no one about him, but they couldn't stop themselves. Our message is about Jesus, and the Spirit allows us to do it. Then finally, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is for the many and not the few. The Holy Spirit is for the many and not the few. I think this kind of misconception comes with our idea that, that we don't know so much about the Spirit, so we think maybe it's only for particular Christians. But the work of the Holy Spirit in us, is, it's for everyone, and the work that we're to do in being witnesses through the Holy Spirit is for us. I nearly laughed out loud last week when Marty had the audacity to say from the front, this isn't my job, because I thought it was, and it probably is. Of course, it's your job, you're the minister. But of course, you're right, because the job of being witnesses to the world is the job of the church, and that that includes ministers, but it's not just the job of the minister. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is for the church. In verses 2 and 3 of Acts 2 that we read, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Not just one or two, not just Peter, James, and John, not just the twelve. It filled the whole house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to, reach, came to rest on each of them. Not just on a few of them, all of them. So I can say it to you, it's, it's not my job. It's our job. That includes me. It's our job and the gift of the Spirit to allow it to happen is for all of us. And not just that the Spirit is given to all believers to help them in their task, but the Spirit helps us to reach all people. It allows us to witness to everyone, even those people we maybe wouldn't expect. And that doesn't mean that everybody will respond positively. Of course it doesn't. But we can witness to them nonetheless. Verse 5 tells us that they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And verse 6 tells us that each one, each one, heard the message in their own language. Luke is very keen to stress this. To us, it's subtle. But each of us receives the Holy Spirit and the message is for everyone. The words all, every, each, or entire come up in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 12. And there are only 13 verses that we read. The Spirit enables the church to reach everyone. But as I mentioned, not everyone will respond positively, and that might discourage some of us. What will they say? They'll say we're brainwashed. They'll say we're deluded. They'll say it's it's fairy stories. And so we might feel like we're not the ones to do the task. Some people in Jerusalem thought the apostles had been drinking wine, even though it was only nine in the morning. If you're here today and you think that you wouldn't be up to the task of being a witness for Jesus Christ, and you think that people wouldn't take you seriously, and that's probably all of us here today, then I want to encourage you with words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Paul didn't think much of his own abilities, chapter 2 and verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, words I find very encouraging after preaching on Leviticus last Sunday night. The message and the preaching doesn't have to be with wise and persuasive words because it is the Holy Spirit who is at work. We've come full circle this morning. We don't go in our own power. We don't have to be eloquent or have it all together because when we are weak, then he is strong. Elsewhere, Paul writes that his weakness allowed the message of the cross to be powerful because it wasn't dressed up in human wisdom from him. It is the Holy Spirit who makes the message powerful, not us. And we speak of Jesus and him crucified. And people will reject the message. And it's no wonder because what God has done is beyond human understanding. Paul will go on to say, quoting Isaiah, that no eye has seen nor ear heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. God will reveal the truth to people and he will build his church. What a challenge. The task of being witnesses for Jesus, reaching out to those who don't know. But praise God that the message isn't me or you or the church with all of its broken and fallen people, but the message is Jesus. And the method isn't our own strength, but in the power of Jesus himself, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, again, we give you thanks for the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that you loved us so much and sent him into the world to be the sacrifice, to pay the price for our sins. Lord, we know you've given us the task of telling other people about you and about what you have done. Lord, and we don't know how to do it. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thought earlier and prayed earlier that we would be prayerful people as we go about the task of reaching the lost. Lord, may we be grounded in you and may we constantly remember that we don't do it in our own strength. So pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to break through into lives and situations, Lord, where we cannot with the good news of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as a church, fill us with your Spirit. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. And Lord, may we trust that you are working by your Spirit in the hearts of those who will hear. So Lord, would you build your kingdom in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.